Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of This Week in Global Development, our weekly podcast where we go over the the development headlines of the week. I'm Raj Kumar, the President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX, and it is great to be back with all of you who are listening in. This is a special edition because we're looking ahead to the UN General Assembly meetings in New York. Always a fun, chaotic time of year, um, and we're going to hear a lot about that. And it's also a special edition because this is being sponsored by the Open Society Foundations. We really appreciate their sponsorship of this podcast as we dive into all things UNGA. And I'm going to be doing that with Natalie Samarasinghe, who is the head of global advocacy at the Open Society Foundations. Hi, Natalie. Hi. Great to be with you. And with Richard Gowen, who is the UN director at the Crisis Group. Hi, Richard. Good morning from New York. Yeah, great to be with both of you. I know I said uh, that UNGA is fun. You're welcome to dispute that. Uh, I've been going to it, I guess, 15 or 20 years now. And it is amazing how the UN General Assembly Week has grown and grown. It's become quite a thing. It was a it's kind of a sleepy diplomatic circle for a while. And it is anything but that now. Maybe Richard, just starting with you, I'd love to hear what do you think of just UNGA week? You know, what do you think of why, why is this week important? Why has it changed so much? Well, I think UNGA is one of those great New York institutions, a bit like the Blue Man Group. You know, people from out of town love uh, coming to visit UNGA. Um, those of us based around the UN view it with a bit of uh, trepidation um, because it is an enormous you know, diplomatic circus now. And I think what has happened over the years is that UNGA has really become a platform where every UN member state, but also every NGO, every foundation comes um, to try and shape the global narrative uh, going into the new political year. I think there are some people who would say that UNGA maybe has lost some value as a you know, core diplomatic meeting space. It probably has lost prestige compared to, for example, the G20 summit, which this year is just on the eve of the General Assembly. But in terms of public relations, in terms of being a space where you know, everyone can share their truth about where multilateralism is going, um, it's only gained attention. And it's really bounced back from COVID too. In 2020, there was no in-person hunger. And I think we, we noticed that that actually was a real loss. And this year, as last year, everyone's going to be here. And I think it came back with a vengeance. Like I tell you from our own programming, and the number of people who want to attend and speak at events, the number of organizations that want to partner with us at events. I mean, UNGA has just exploded. And it's, I think it's a very different time for the UN General Assembly meeting, Natalie, because, you know, when I think about your role at OSF and you're trying to take all that OSF does, all the power behind it, and, and do a lot of what Richard just described, which is kind of shift the narrative and promote an idea that 
look, if we want to make change, there are a number of things we have to do around political and structural and social factors. And UNGA is a great place to do that. But when you think about, let's say, I don't know, 2015, when the sustainable development goals were first put forward, it was just a very different environment. And now you have, you know, a series of coups in the Sahel region. You have you know, Russia's invasion and war in Ukraine. You've got the growing geopolitical conflict between the West and China. Uh, of course, since those SDGs were put forward, we had the election of Donald Trump, right? We have just a number of really big shifts in the space that make it almost quaint to look back on that era when we were all getting together and sort of in a kumbaya moment saying, what can we do to help the world? And now we're kind of back to some of the hard geopolitics that the UN and the UNGA is maybe known for. So I, I'd love your take on what, what do you think about 2023's UN General Assembly? I think in a way the, the, the messiness, the, the circus that Richard described is, is befitting of the moment. Uh, you know, years back, before I joined Open Society, um, actually, you know, you could look on the UNGA and High Level Week as the, the end point of many processes that had been, you know, tightly managed, agreements secured, and it was just, you know, a big rubber stamp, and here's the message we're putting out to the world, whether that's, you know, development goals or, you know, a new climate agreement or whatever. Now it feels that, you know, all of these little things are being contested. So agendas that have been previously agreed are now being called into question. You're seeing the rivalries play out. So even if there aren't, you know, key... I think decisions that we'll see taken during high level week, the narrative matters a lot more. Who is talking behind the scenes matters a lot more. And that's why we have been putting a lot more emphasis on UNGA and high level week, because it really is about looking at who are the coalitions now of actors in a very kind of shifting, messy geopolitical situation that we need to engage, bring together. Um, Richard is right, the in-person meetings matter. It's who we can connect to behind the scenes how can we, you know, make people go off script a little bit more um, and find a way forward on the conflict situations? And yes, absolutely shape the narrative. I, you know, I just I kind of want to come, come to this issue of narrative because it's already come up a couple of times. Right. And and I think, of course, coming from the world of journalism, that narrative is really important, you know, that it does matter. But I could let me just put up the counter argument, which is that in this moment where essentially all the the countries that tend to agree, the OECD countries, the, the G20, the G7, that tend to sort of say, yes, climate is an important issue or pandemics are an important issue, that they are, in a sense, politically tapped out. They're not going to do much more. We're not going to see the next, I don't know, climate version of PEPFAR, let's say, in the U.S. And as a result, all eyes and attention are now on the World Bank and on the MDBs and on this idea of financially engineering the, the global financial architecture in some way that's going to magically unlock billions, maybe trillions of new dollars. And that in that environment, is the UN still that relevant? Right. And we, we hear Secretary General Guterres kind of talking about that financial architecture quite a bit. And obviously, you know, these institutions are sister institutions. They're related to the UN. But I guess what I wonder is, does the narrative coming out of UNGA week matter as much as it used to? You know, give, give us the argument for why it does, Natalie. It does because of who is present and who is in the room. I mean, the whole point about 
reforming the international financial architecture is that it represents power inequalities. I mean, it's a, it's a great symbol of a power anachronism and the power imbalance we currently face. So if you're looking for a financial system that is more equitable, more fair and more inclusive, it doesn't make sense for all the decisions on that architecture to be taken in spaces that are exclusive. Um, so that is the World Bank with its quota system. That is the G20, where, yes, you have emerging economies, but what do you, what about the smaller states? You know, they're going to be left by the wayside. I do think there's a clear role there for the UN, for the General Assembly in particular as a universal forum, but also given that the UN looks at agendas more holistically. So, you know, you will have a discussion on inequality and its links with climate, how climate impacts conflict, conflict impacts democracy. Um, I think it's important to have a forum that is, you know, got that bird's eye view instead of a very narrow focus around, okay, debt and how do we get, you know, balance sheets back in order. So I do think it matters enormously. Yeah, maybe these issues are too important for just the bankers and the financial engineers to be involved in. Richard, I'd love your take on you know, this particular issue of the evolving financial reforms and where the UN fits in, but also kind of the broader issue of the UN's relevance, maybe changing, evolving relevance in this particular moment, 2023, with all the challenges we've already brought up. Well, what Natalie is saying reminds me of a conversation um, I had with a US diplomat a few years ago. Um, I think we were stuck in a bar because of security regulations during the, the GA week. And this guy was pretty exhausted, and he said, you know, the GA is for small countries. The US is not a small country. I don't know why I'm here. Now, he, he didn't mean that as a compliment, but actually I think he had hit on something very important, which is the GA platform is one space where leaders of small and middle-sized economies can come, and their, their cumulative weight of what they're saying can sort of shift the political dial. Mia Motley is kind of the best example here, right? She, she's certainly become a rock star in the development sector and well beyond, uh, and kind of caught lightning in a bottle based on her speech at the UN General Assembly and has changed the whole trajectory of the, the MDB reform movement, the global financial architecture reforms that are being talked about. I think Motley is the most recent example of exactly how the leader of a small state can use the General Assembly as a platform to you know, shape global political discussions. That said, I think we've got to be conscious that uh, there is another leader who is set to visit New York this year, who is a bit of a pre-made star in his own right, and that is President Zelensky of Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky didn't come in person last year. Uh, he was stuck in Kiev. Uh, this year, he is down to speak on the first day of the main speeches. And I think that while a lot of diplomats, and especially diplomats from the Global South, would like this General Assembly session to be about the SDGs, to be about multilateral financial reforms, if Zelensky comes and gives a, a powerful speech, that is going to suck a lot of attention away from these development issues. And actually, that could potentially be quite divisive because some leaders from the Global South may feel that this was their opportunity to share their messages about the international system. But once again, Ukraine is dominating the headlines. Right. It sort of puts Ukraine as the first issue 
you know, we've got to address that before we can get to climate, before we can get to the food crisis, before we can get to the rest of the SDGs. Um, just in terms of what you, Natalie, have been saying all along about narrative, right, and how important that is, that could easily be the narrative that comes out, the media message that comes out. Absolutely. But I think there is an opportunity to really break out from that sort of polarizing narrative right now, because, you know, you have so many needs of Ukraine's around debt, around financing account, you know, reconstruction that actually lend themselves quite well to making a bigger picture point that even if you have support from, you know, the U.S., powerful states, even if the whole international system is, is being used and the toolbox open to support you, there's still a huge gap there because there are just areas that the system doesn't address. And could we not look at a situation where any kind of preferential and treatment that Ukraine is now getting on, on, on debt or, 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 or you know, humanitarian assistance, how do we look at leveraging that, leveraging that for other countries too? I think that's quite a powerful message. So it doesn't become sort of it's Ukraine or, but rather it's Ukraine and these agendas. I think that would really go a long way to address this crisis of, of trust. Um, you know, I think Western diplomats assumed that their counterparts in developing countries would react with the same you know, sense of shock and alarm uh, when Russia's all-out invasion of Ukraine happened. But of course, developing countries were sitting there thinking, well, we've been dealing with conflicts for a long time too. We've had to deal with atrocities. Rich countries have made a string of promises to us on you know, climate finance, on COVID vaccines, on humanitarian assistance. None of this is happening. And now there's a sort of very transactional approach on will you support, or, uh, you know, support us when we vote on this issue? I think anger and that narrative, if if one could find a way to, 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 to bring those two stories together, you actually have a very powerful action agenda that can then go forth from anger into the other forums. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you are likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. The theme of this year's UNGA is rebuilding trust and reigniting global solidarity. I mean, very, a very high bar, right? And it certainly acknowledges right in the theme that trust is broken. And I think it's broken on many levels. You know, you, you talk about countries in the global south not trusting the system, not trusting the promises of the richer nations. But it's also broken at the at the individual level, right? There's a, a dramatic drop in trust in institutions in general, in rich countries and poor alike. Natalie, you at OSF went out and actually started to to talk to people, to poll people in 30 countries to see what some of the challenges we talked about are like from the public's perception. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you found in that polling. 
Yeah, so we commissioned something we're, we're calling the Open Society Barometer, and it really was there to serve as a reality check, you know, as all of us descend upon New York with our best intentions and our sort of lobbying, you know, uh, manifestos. It was, you know, really there to say, have we actually connected with people on the ground? Um, you know, there's a time, I, I think right now, this is a time of so much sort of distrust and disinformation. There's a lot of emphasis on divisions. And governments have, you know, their own spin and narrative, and they're not the same as people. So I think that was the, you know, really what we wanted to put out there with with, with this poll. So we went out to uh, 30 countries, 15 of the G20 members, uh, Russia, China, the US, France, UK, so the, all the permanent members of the Security Council as well. Uh, a combined, I think, 5.5 billion people represented uh, in these countries. And we found a lot of good news. So there's huge faith in democracy. Uh, 86% of our respondents want to live in a you know, democracy. And if you drill down at the country level, there's some you know fascinating places where this data is coming from. People think democracies are better at delivering outcomes. They want their countries to work with other democracies. They think democracies do better on the international stage, uh, in international institutions. So really, whatever way we put the question, people chose democracy as, as, as the answer, which actually I have to say is not what we expected. Um, there was also strong support for these you know, core human rights you know, values. Again, something that is very contested in narratives. Governments sort of say, well, whose values are these anyway? This is a Western agenda. That really wasn't the, the case when we went out and, and, and asked people. But what is really interesting is that where you have high faith in, in democratic government, in human rights, uh, in international institutions, actually, the UN tends to do really well when you poll people and say, do you trust the UN? Do you think it exists? You know, it should exist and play a big role. It does really, really well. But there is a big disconnect, I think, between what people want to happen and what they see happening. So they look around them and they say, yes, I'd rather live in a democracy than any other system. But I still see democratic leaders in my country not delivering enough on climate, not tackling inequality. Uh, I think one of the starkest findings in the poll was that 58% of people and majorities in 22 of the 30 countries we polled think that political unrest will lead to violence in their streets in the next 12 months. It's really stark. And that, you know, we have high figures reporting that in countries, uh, you know, in, in, in some African and Asian countries, but we also have a good two thirds of people saying that might happen in the US and in France. So there's a shared fear here. And I think that's how the two agendas around security, democracy rights, and debt climate really come together. People think that, you know, if these leaders cannot deliver on these agendas, what is it that we see that is stopping them from doing that? And overwhelmingly, I think people want the international system to give their leaders more space to take the actions they need on the ground. And I think that is a, is, is a key example of this. You look at a country that has high debt and the types of remedies that they're being asked to take from the international system are inevitably austerity. It's, you know, and so they end up spending more servicing their debt than they do on health or education or climate. And that's when we get into problems then. Then you start having resentments towards the international system. That's when governments are less stable and end up collapsing. So I think, you know, it is it is a big stretch, I think, to go from the pole to all those remedies. But you can see how that, you know, those narratives that we discuss in a policy space are actually filtering down at the popular level as well.
Yeah, it makes sense, right? If you think about it from the perspective of the average person, in the end, they need this system to deliver, right? We can't just go to New York and talk in this very high-minded way about how important these issues are. If it's not delivering in their lives, that's what leads to authoritarianism. That, that's what leads to the degradation of democracy in so many places in the world, rich and poor alike. And one of the standout lines, I think, you know, another developing country leader, I think, who really got the messaging right is, is the Zambian president. I think he said it very succinctly, you can't eat democracy. And I think that should worry us all. You know, if that is the big takeaway, I think we are still now in a good place where people you know, support by and large the international system and they, you know, want human rights, they, they you know, respect institutions. But that consensus is really not going to hold very much longer if we reach a tipping point on all of these issues. I think that's so right. And I, I think back to before the pandemic, if you looked at the SDGs and the progress the world was making on them, the story was largely a good news story. You saw, you know, upward trajectories in health and in hunger and in many other aspects of uh, sustainable development, things were getting better with one glaring exception, which was human rights, democracy, right? We saw those statistics dropping off a cliff. And you could argue, again, pre-pandemic, that, well, these things are unrelated, that somehow the world can achieve all of the other goals and, and still slip on democracy and human rights. Now that the pandemic happened, kind of all the SDG indicators are going in the wrong direction. Uh, so it's maybe, you know, you can see now that we're all in the same place, but perhaps this year's UNGA will become clearer that these things are fundamentally linked, that it's the lack of delivering on one set that will lead to the other. You get into this vicious circle. Richard, what's your take on what those poll results show? Well, they certainly fit with crisis groups work in some of the areas uh, in Africa where we've seen a spate of coups recently. I mean, if you look at the Sahel uh, you've seen the military take over in Mali, Niger, uh, and other countries. What our analysts on the ground say is that the people in those countries still, at some level, really want democracy. They simply say that, that for the last 10 years, the democratic leaders they've had have not been delivering for them. And so they um, are attracted to uh, these military coups because they're you know, they're simply tired of um, the reality of the governance they have been, been dealing with. And so I think that it is, it is quite possible for people to believe in democracy in the abstract, to believe that it is the best model in the abstract, but still under, you know, economic pressures, when you don't have employment, when you just don't have governance, you turn to alternative um, forms of leadership. And I think this is a, a risk that we also see as Natalie described in, in countries which are suffering from, from very severe debt burdens, that these, these pressures are, are going to push in the direction of autocracy. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's a really interesting idea that this General Assembly, which comes at the halfway point of the SDG implementation process, or what is fast becoming the SDG non-implementation process, um, is a moment for a, you know, pretty frank and pretty brutal stock taking about why we need to get um, our development efforts back on track and why we need to link them to to strengthening governance worldwide. I think the sort of the happy bit of the SDG story, which was about, you know, getting all these targets and, you know, making early progress, that that's over. That ended in 2020, if, if not before. Um, and, you know, what leaders really need to come to do 
come together to do this year is talk about why they have a common interest in getting the SDGs back on track, not only for reasons of poverty eradication, but frankly, also for reasons of global stability. Um, And this, you know, this may be one of the themes that emerges this year. And as you say, Raj, you know, we do hope there will be a cascade effect. We do hope that you will have enough political momentum coming out of the General Assembly for more more technocratic policymakers to make some hard decisions about, um, firstly, uh, reforming the financial institutions and secondly, getting a grip on the uh, UN climate negotiations, which are also so far off track as to be almost invisible. I wonder if there are hard decisions for the UN to make for itself as well, right? Because so much of what we're talking about is the forum that the UN General Assembly offers to shape a political narrative and develop momentum. But but I wonder what some of these trends mean for the UN, for its own agencies, right? For its development, humanitarian health agencies, for the the leadership of the Secretary General, uh, for Amina Mohammed, like, you know, what are, are there hard decisions for them? Do you think the UN itself needs to change given the challenges we've just described? I'm curious, Natalie, if you have a thought about this. I think it it does need to change. Um, in 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 some ways, I think it needs to go back to basics. I think we, you know, in in, in happier times, uh, there was a lot of expectation placed upon the UN. You know, whether that's the Security Council being able to take decisive action on conflict, you know, really prevent atrocities, get engaged in civil wars. Uh, galvanize these big development agendas, but then also deliver them in country in partnership. I, I I do think that that era is over. I think you know if you just look at the the sheer kind of level of need now and compare that with the UN's own resources, which are modest, um, the overstretch it has, the immense amount of of ground it's supposed to cover. Right. I mean, there isn't a single issue really that someone doesn't suggest gets discussed in some committee and have a whole working group and, you know, and, and program attached to it. So I think there needs to be a bit of a, you know, coming down you know, to earth and saying, you know, maybe the Security Council is just about keeping, you know, big powers in check, making sure they can talk to each other, preventing World War Three. Uh, maybe the General Assembly is best placed uh, to be this kind of a forum. And I wouldn't underestimate that. I think, you know, in addition to the technocratic program of work that we hope will emerge from this General Assembly, there is a huge public engagement narrative point as well. One of the most alarming findings from our poll was that support for democracy and tolerance of you know strong leaders who 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 don't abide by their parliaments or elections that seems to increase um the younger you get and i really worry that it's the young you know who have been surrounded by crises that their governments seem incapable of solving even a domestic issue like unemployment now seems to be linked to a global agenda whether that's debt or trade negotiations or whatever you know pandemics so i think there's that narrative element as well um and along those lines i think there are a series of much more modest goals that the UN could be focusing on. And I feel like the Secretary General himself has recognized that shift. If you look at documents such as the New Agenda for Peace, it really looks at throwing the ball into the member state's court and saying the UN's role is to help you with data, with intel, you know, maybe with some mediation, but really 
this is an age of, of, of geopolitics and the role of institutions needs to necessarily take a back seat. Um, and I think the way to square that circle in, in areas such as development is to look more and more at how the UN can empower the partners on the ground. Um, so really take that same approach, even though the UN is still very well placed to do all of this and it isn't as contested as it is in the conflict space. I think questions around legitimacy, around capacity, around empowering, uh, empowering governments, but also civil society, more and more that's going to come into question now. And I think if the UN were to adopt that kind of approach, you know, let's see the the next iteration of the sustainable development goals is a huge capacity building drive where we're sort of trying to empower the the world people and institutions and governments to 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 lead this change i think that also has a really positive effect on how the un can use its own resources and when there are crisis situations when you do need it to come into play it has a lot more space and a lot more money to do so right, you you need the un officials in the white land rovers you know, traveling sometimes to address an issue, but you don't want the world to just see the UN that way. And and this localization agenda, which can sound pretty technical and you know, technocratic, you know, but in the end, there is a political dimension to it, which is, hey, we're giving up money and authority, decision-making to local organizations, to communities. And we're, we're saying, you decide, you fix the problems in your own community in the way that makes the most sense to you. It's not us coming in those those white Land Rovers, right? So I think there is a, maybe a shift there in the way the UN actually operates and therefore is perceived and therefore maybe can regain some of the trust that, that we talked about. Uh, but that is a chilling statistic, Natalie, that younger people who maybe don't have the experience of seeing autocracy or seeing the downside risks of leaders who say, you know, I alone can save you, um, that those younger people are so frustrated with the current state of affairs that they say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to take that trade uh, more than their parents. And that, that is a little frightening. I guess, Richard, um, you know, when you think about the SDGs, you said kind of the, the fairy tale beginning is over and we're in this much tougher uh, time. What, what can the UN actually do differently now? Like what, what is the, you know, we know what the role maybe is for, for countries, but what's the UN's role? Is there a reform agenda? You've written about the new agenda that the Secretary General has put out. What do you think, where do you think the UN goes from here? Well, I think that this is something that Guterres is trying to work through. And I mean, he's seeing this not only in terms of this year's high level week, but also looking ahead to 2024, when he's going to convene a uh, a rather grandly entitled event called the Summit of the Future. And, um, you know, Guterres wants this 2024 summit, which to date has been rather obscured by, you know, short-term debates over the SDG summit. Uh, nonetheless, he wants this to be a moment when the UN tries to grasp some of the new forces in technology, and in the international economy that are shaping how we live and will also shape how the global economy develops. So the Secretary General has a particular interest in artificial intelligence. Um, he's interested in various other forms of uh, new tech. And in a series of documents that he's put out this year, he said we really need to start a multilateral discussion about how we govern AI, how we govern new tech 
how we mitigate the downside risks, for example, of the militarization of AI, but also how we use these, um, you know, these huge advances to, you know, actually help with poverty eradication and actually uh, sort of help catch up on the SDG agenda. And I think that, you know, Guterres is approaching his final years in office, and I think probably the last big thing he wants to leave the UN with is some sort of architecture for managing the positives and negatives of, of new technologies. And that is very difficult because you have some big players in the tech space like the US and China who do not necessarily want to have this all coming under you know, UN oversight. But even if Guterres makes some progress in that direction, I think that would be uh, a very important legacy. Because and, and a good yeah. and a good example of why the UN is needed, right? Because you know, how do you take a technology like AI and develop some kind of rational regulatory framework, if not at a global level? You know, if you if you clamp down on some bad behavior in one country and people can just move next door and do it there, and it has existential risks for the whole planet, you know, it doesn't make any sense. You need the UN. You need some kind of global global regulatory architecture in the same way that you do on so many other issues. And so it, maybe it's a good example. If Guterres can show progress there, it kind of helps to, to sell the idea that the UN is needed in so many other areas. Now, I'm curious, you know, as we, as we wrap up here, what the two of you are kind of particularly paying attention to. I'm very much paying attention to the tone. Richard, you talked about how far behind we are. And, you know, there is a sense that maybe we should abandon the SDGs. This is not a, not a large sense, certainly not in our community. But I think there are people out there who say this is a sideshow, it's irrelevant, look, we've lost already. And so the tone coming out of these meetings to show, no, there actually is global commitment. We might not have, you know, something in the declaration that points to where the money is coming from. We may not have something very tangible to hold on to at the end of this summit, but there will be a clear sense of commitment. And I, I think that's going to be very important because if we don't get that, if we get wrangling, Natalie, as you were saying, wordsmithing over minor issues and, and a lack of a sense of kind of global cohesion that the SDGs are the framework and we are committed to them, I think that we'll have a much bigger challenge ahead. And the challenge is already big. It's big enough without that. Um, so besides the fact that we should all wear comfortable shoes if you're in New York uh, and be well hydrated and ready for this intense week, is there anything else you're, you're looking to that you want to leave our listeners with? Richard, I'll start with you. I fully agree that the sort of biggest takeaway, although it's something that is a little intangible, is do we come out of the high level week feeling that you know, the global north and global south, very broadly defined, got a little closer or got a little further apart? Um, and I, you know, I do worry that we may just have a, a week where everyone comes and speaks their truths um, which are slightly incompatible truths about the state of the world. And that will feed into a lot of the commentary that we've heard in recent weeks about you know, the BRICS emerging as a counter to the G7 and a further sort of further splitting and fragmentation of, um, uh, of the world. I hope that by contrast, it will be possible to find at least some strong sentiments about the need to get together around the SDGs and about rebooting development that will be unifying. Um, on top of that, as a as a crisis person, um, 
I will be keeping a rather cynical eye out for talk about Security Council reform. Last year, Joe Biden came to the UN and said that the US would push a, um, an initiative on Security Council reform. So far, it doesn't look like the US has actually found a formula that other countries can buy into. Uh, but that is another issue which actually opens up divisions amongst member states. If you're a country like India, especially India, but also Brazil, the fact that you're not at the top seat in the Security Council is one more reason that you don't trust the UN. So it will be, it will be intriguing to see if there's even minuscule progress on sort of the council reform discussions. Yeah, and one more reason you might you know, look further and further toward the BRICS uh, group that's now expanding as a, as a place you know, to, put, to park some of your political capital and maybe even real capital. Uh, Natalie, what about you? Anything you're looking to in particular that you want to leave people with? Yeah, I'm not going to wade into Security Council reform in, in a few closing moments, Richard. I, you know, that's uh, very wise. I'm very wise to go there. <laughs> Look, I think uh, I, I, what I would like to see is a sign that these supposedly conflicting agendas around, you know, hard security, so-called, you know, Western ideals, etc. And, and what has been billed as a developing country agenda around debt, climate, really to see some kind of mutual understanding of that and some outcomes. So really going, going away with a sense that, yes, there are huge you know, disagreements on priorities on what we do, but there's enough consensus that on A, B, C and D, we're going to actually do something. So I think it's a sense of really showing these bodies work we always talk about it being a forum for discussion and, you know, let's actually show that, that that has some outcomes as well. So it's not just talking for the sake of it and a sense of leadership. So I think the Secretary General is right to say that member states need to own these decisions. But I do think it is also a chance to reassure, you know, the world's people. There is also a grown-up here who heads the UN, who 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 is looking at the bigger picture, who can see you know behind these different agendas, and who is looking to the future, whether that's on you know tech or whatever. Um, I think that is a really important um, factor that people look to the UN. Yeah, that's a great point that we do need that adult in the room, and certainly Guterres uh, is and can be that person for us this year. Well, it's going to be a fascinating week. This is like our for DevX, maybe the World Cup and the and the Oscars or something mixed together. We have a huge reporting team. We're attending so many events, uh, writing and reporting on so many things. But but what a treat to get these two UN insiders uh, to give us kind of a, a take on how the week is going to roll out and lots of things to pay attention to. Richard Gowan, Natalie Samarasinghe, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this special edition of This Week in Global Development and enjoy Hundo Week as much as you can. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Thank you.